Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Lori, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast again. I'm excited for our chat today. Me too. We got a lot of good things to talk about. We do. We do. But before we do, we got some really good bad jokes. (laughs) Favorite part of the show. (laughs) So why did the fish get bad grades? Because it dropped out of school. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. That's not the answer I have, but I like that answer. (laughs) What is it? It's because it was below sea level. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Okay, I do like that one. That that you threw me a curveball on that one, okay? Because I've seen it and I really thought I had it, but that that's a, that's a good one. I like it. Why did the vegan go fishing? Why? Just for the halibut. Ah! <laughs> Dads, I hope you're paying attention because you're getting some good material here. You know, right? Nick told me the other day, we might throw in a couple bonus pirate jokes right now because Nick was telling me yesterday how he, at work, was like talking about the new pirate movie and have you guys seen it? And he's and everybody's getting really excited. And he's like, yeah, it's rated R. And they're oh like, oh my gosh, he did not. <laughs> and then, <laughs> And then they like start, you know, they keep keep talking, whatever. And then he's like, "Yeah, oh, do you guys know what a pi- pirate's favorite letter is?" And they're all like, "Oh, R." Da, 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 da. And Nick's like, "No, it's the letter C." <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I love that you're bringing my corny jokes into the workplace, dear. You're welcome. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Oh, that's so great. That's good stuff. All right. I have one more. Actually, well, that was like three jokes right there. But I like I like this. I like this one. What kind of music should you listen to while fishing? Uh, I don't know. Something with a good tuna. Oh. <laughs> Oh, okay. Then you're going to like this last one then because it's, it's really bad. Uh, why are fish so gullible? Why? They fall for things hook, line, and sinker. Oh. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right. You have a quote for us to get started on our, our first topic of the day, fisheries. I do. My first quote is by Rachel Carson, um, who most will know around the marine biology space. 
Um, so the quote is, the real wealth of the nation lies in the resources of the earth, soil, water, forests, minerals, and wildlife. To utilize them for present needs while ensuring their preservation for future generations requires a delicately balanced and continuing program based on the most extensive research. Their administration is not properly and cannot be a matter of politics. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I feel like fisheries is very political. So we want to, we're not talking about, and when we say fishing fisheries, we're not necessarily talking about, you know, going out and listening to a good tuna on the boat and like hanging out with friends. That's recreational fishing. We're talking more about commercial fishing, fishing or fisheries. Um, so you have a little bit more of a description for that, Lori. Would you share that? Yeah. So when we're talking about commercial fisheries, we're talking about the taking of fish and other seafood resources from the ocean, rivers, lakes for the purpose of marketing them. So for sale, um, mm -hmm. it can be done on a small scale and it's also done on a larger scale. Um, so when you're talking about the simpler methods of commercial fishing, you're talking about small vessels. They have little technical equipment little to no mechanization, um, which we see with more small local fisheries. Um, so think of, you know, more like your charter captains or your uh, small fishing town that's going out and scalloping or, you know, catching crabs and things like that. More simple means. Um, but it can also be done on a larger scale with, bigger boats that can go further away from shore and they have a lot more sophisticated mechanical equipment. Um, and that is going to be, in my opinion, what is going to drive these uh, big changes that we're seeing in our fisheries. Um, so even though they're mm -hmm. all encompassed together, the small scale and the large scale, um, I believe the large scale is where we're kind of focusing right now. When we talk about commercial fishing and we say, you know, small boats, this is like the guys that can kind of go out for the day and come back in. Um, and they do have some equipment that can, that definitely makes an impact on the ocean and their numbers can make an impact as well. Um, but there's, then we talk about these really big boats that can go out. And when we say offshore, we're like, they can go international waters. They can be gone for weeks at a time. These are really big boats with really big gear. <clears throat> you have a breakdown of kind of the different types of gear that these different um, different people use? Yeah, of course. Um, and first, before we go into the gear, so I guess it's, you know, kind of good to look at what they're actually fishing for and the categories that it breaks down into. So there's two major categories. There's the demersal species, which is what we're going to call like our ground fish species. Those are going to live towards the bottom of the lake or the sea um, or towards the bottom. Think like cod, haddock, flatfish, things of that nature, fish of that nature. Um, then we're going to have our pelagic species. And mm -hmm. those are the species that are going to live in the open ocean near to the surface. Think like herring and tuna. Um, there's other species that are harvested in commercial fisheries as well. Um, there's crustaceans, so lobsters, crabs, shrimp. Uh, mollusks, so oysters, scallops, mussels, squid, octopus. Um, I'm also including ornamental aquarium trade in the commercial fisheries um, because that is a 
big market, in my opinion, um, just the selling and trading of ornamental fish and sponges and anemones and um, things like that for people's home aquariums or businesses that have aquariums. Um, so that's kind of what they're mm -hmm. fishing like for um, or some of the common things that a fish or species that are fished for. And then as far as gears and gear types and methods that are used, um, there's a lot. <laughs> we have really advanced mm -hmm. in our fishing practices throughout the years, um, but I'm just going to kind of highlight a couple that I think are uh, the most impactful. Um, so you have your line fishing, which is going to be, you know, hand lines, pole and line, um, anything that you're using like an artificial bait. So you're also going to include your long lines in that category. Um, fishing with bag nets. Mm -hmm. So that's when you have like, uh, a, it's like a vertical, it's kept vertically open by a frame. And then the water running through it is going to make it go horizontal. So it's basically going to filter large volumes of water and anything that goes in the net is going to get trapped, basically. Um, it's, it's not a very selective way of fishing, obviously. Um, then you're going to have dredging and trawling. And dredges, um, those you're going to drag on the bottom of the seabed. And you're going to use that mostly for like shellfish. Mm -hmm. That's also not very selective. And it's very, very damaging to the seafloor and coral and... Um, anything living at the at the seafloor and trawling nets are also going to be kind of in that where you can tow them midwater or close to the seafloor and those are usually towed behind a vessel and they have like a big opening that kind of filters into a cod end um, so it's also not selective at mm -hmm. all anything can get trapped in there um, there's also seining so Persanes are typically used in pelagic fishing, which is where they're going to surround the fish on all mm -hmm. sides as well as from underneath. So the fish can't escape by diving down under. Um, and those are typically used for like tuna, mackerel, salmon. We also have gill nets and entangling type nets. Um, those are going to be made from mess, mesh. I'm sorry. Then some nets are actually anchored or fixed to the bottom of the ocean, uh, whatever substrate they're on and others are actually drift nets and they drift mm -hmm. freely in the ocean currents. They basically catch anything that they come across. Um, and that's where you see this concept of ghost nets in the ocean that are just kind of drifting mm -hmm. without anything around. And they're just kind of sweeping in and catching anything that comes in their path. Um, and then there's also machine harvesting. So you have uh, pumps and underwater jets and things like that to dig up shellfish and mollusks and things of that nature, which is also going to be detrimental to the seabed. Um, so those are kind of like the main ones, in my opinion, mm -hmm. that are going to have the biggest effect on the marine environment and the species that live in the marine environment. Just to kind of highlight you know, we've been fishing forever, you know, but our practices have evolved in such a way that we've become so good at catching large numbers 
of fish. And because of that, you know, overfishing is a major threat to marine health and the aquatic biodiversity. Um, So there's approximately Mm -hmm. 3 billion people in the world that rely on wild caught and farmed seafood as a primary source of protein. Right now, the world population is currently Mm -hmm. at 7.9 billion people. By 2050, they're estimating that the population will exceed 9 billion people. So you can imagine that the the demand is just going to go up over time for seafood. Um, Mm -hmm. It's the largest traded food commodity in the world. Uh, But there is a carrying capacity, you know, like the ocean can only support so much, uh, you know, which is why we're seeing such a decline Mm -hmm. in numbers. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization estimated that 85% of marine fish stocks are either fully exploited or overfished beyond biological limits. So what we mean when we're saying they're overexploited is that if the amount of wild fish that we catch exceeds the rate at which fish can reproduce and replenish naturally, the populations will decline over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where we're getting that term overexploited. Yep. Um, and that's what, what's happening, unfortunately. Yeah. And I want to define overfishing as well. So overfishing is catching too many fish at once. And this is particularly in the breeding population. We want to make sure we're taking care of our breeding fish so that there's more generations of fish for us to go out and catch. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just catching this target fish. It's also, and this is a huge part of it, catching the unwanted fish that aren't used and unable to be returned to the population. So when we talk about these gill nets, um, drift, you know, drift nets drifting through the ocean, these persanes that catch that are very indiscriminate, the dredging on the bottom, um, they, they'll catch things and kill things that would, uh, that they don't need and they don't want to. It's unintentional and we call that bycatch. But the problem is, they're still killing it. And so it's taken out of the population and then we don't even consume it. Um, so it's just a true waste. And that's a huge part of the overfishing problem. Agreed. I completely agree. Um, you know, I, I think that has a lot to do with where we get this concept of the shifting baseline, like where that comes from. And this shifting baseline concept, it's basically describing the slow degrading changes in an ecosystem, in this case, a fishery, that they're so hard to notice because they happen so slowly over time that you don't even realize that a hundred years ago, your grandpa caught a tuna and then you catch a tuna today and you compare the two photos and your grandpa's is you know triple the size of what you caught today because we're just overfishing like you said those mature adults out of the population and then we're not giving them time Mm -hmm. to recover um, and reproduce unfortunately so our number of large fish is declining our number of mature adults that can reproduce is declining um, and because mm-hmm. of this trend, you, you see these, these shifting baselines over time, unfortunately. Totally a shifting baseline syndrome. And, um, that's a really good way to highlight that is, you know, the fish that we catch today look totally different than the fish that we've caught. I mean, even 
you know, 20, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, definitely is a different thing. And when people go out fishing now, they're, there may not be the schools of fish that they remember because of this. And then, but somebody in, you know, my age or younger is like, Oh, well, this is normal. It's, and that's kind of how the baselines shift throughout each generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why data collection is so important so that we can see these trends over time and like longstanding data sets that evaluate this and really put numbers to it are so important. Yeah, I agree. And just to kind of expound on that a little bit, too, just because, you know, when we talk about Rachel Carson and and Sylvia Earle, you know, those are the people that pop up in my mind as pioneers in actually observing, like they've dedicated their life's work and they've noticed all of these small changes that happened over time. They were able to identify some of these shifting baselines before people even realized that they were happening, um, Mm -hmm. which is where their call to action came from. And, you know, they were kind of pioneering this charge, I think, for um, stricter regulations and just looking at ways that we can slow this progression down. Mm -hmm. So how did we get here, right? Like we got, you know, we just got bigger and better. The industrial revolution truly revolutionized, not just on land, but at sea. We created these big monster hulking boats that can go out for weeks at a time and hold these big hulking monster pieces of equipment and they can store the fish on ice. So they keep for that long. Um, But all of that, aside, like, how do we, how did we get to, how do we fix this? And how, kind of, how do we get here? And one of the biggest things is the challenge of regulation, right? Like you can write, and we talked about Rachel Carson's like politics aside, but it really has to be a political game, unfortunately, which is what regulation is, but keeping an eye on and tracking and like really, really putting a pin on these vessels is, is huge. Like, how do you, it's it's a very daunting task um, and most governments lack resources to do it. And, you know, even the U.S. is one of the best regulated fisheries in the world and it still ha- struggles and it's much better funded than most countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I saw a statistic that for every vessel stop, there's 30 more that make port. So, yeah, it, you know, the regulation and, and the actual enforcing of the regulation is a huge issue for sure. Yeah, agreed. And especially once you get out in those international waters, I mean, pretty much it's the Wild West out there. You can do whatever you want. So um, it's not well regulated. It's hard to to really know. So, um, yeah, I I completely agree. International water for for listeners is 20 miles off the coast of every country. (laughs) So you you get offshore, you get 20 miles offshore, which you can do in like a 20 foot boat on a calm day. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not unheard of. So you get 20 miles offshore and then all bets are off. And pretty much the only way for for regulation to happen is to catch you when they come back into port. So, um, you know, this is again, recreational fishing and not commercial, but here in Florida, we have certain days and certain seasons that are definitely a higher higher volume boaters. And so we have our local FWC, it's a Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. They will come and be at the dock and they're start, and they're looking at boats. Did you go out fishing? What did you catch? And they're looking at what you caught. But even if, you know, you and so the threat of being policed in that way and the threat of a fine and, you know, 
hopefully as an ocean steward, you're trying to follow the rules, but there's, they can't stop everybody. And that's just a very small example. Um, right. If you don't have that, if you don't mind that threat, or if you can bribe your official because it's a poor country um, and officials will take bribes, then it becomes more of an issue. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I was actually doing a little bit of digging into kind of more of the root causes or some more root causes to overfishing. And I came across um, a report by it's uh, a report by the UN Fisheries and Agriculture Association. It's the status of the World Fisheries Report for 2020. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about how harmful subsidies from the government are actually fueling these uh, harmful fishing practices. And so they went into, you know, saying that the government subsidized fisheries when economic hardships occur. Example, COVID, mm-hmm. <laughs> global pandemic, just a <laughs> small example. <laughs> according to the UN Fisheries and Agriculture Association or organization, um, according to that report, the status of World Fisheries Report, the government's paid out over $22 billion in harmful subsidies in 2018. And the subsidies are being paid out to help build fleets um, by adding more boats and equipment and fuel and things like that. Um, But reports are also finding across the globe that these subsidies decrease long-term productivity of fisheries by leading to an oversized fleet, encouraging overfishing, depleting Mm -hmm. resources, which has that long-term implication. Um, research is also finding mm-hmm. that when governments reform their subsidy programs, the ecological and eco- or economical, sorry, the ecological and economical outcomes improve significantly. Um, so the reformation would look like mm-hmm. redirecting funds towards sustainable livelihoods and better fisheries management practices. Um, And actually, the World Bank estimates that effective management of global marine fisheries and the recovery of fish stocks would yield increased revenues of $83 billion a year if they were implemented. But they said that's not possible if harmful Mm. subsidies persist. Um, So it's it's more Mm. so just trying to get these governments to redirect their money in in more productive ways um, because it's in these fishermen's best interest to protect their livelihood. It's in their best interest to Mm -hmm. have strong management practices so they can fish for a lifetime. So their kids, kids, kids can Mm -hmm. fish. Um, There won't be fisheries Mm -hmm. if we continue on this path, you know, there won't, it's just, it's not sustainable, unfortunately. That brings up a good point. Another part of this equation is another part of this puzzle is that the lack of knowledge of fish populations and quotas. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no like real good index or real good baseline to determine like exactly how many squid or tuna or halibut or, you know, whatever, um, any species in marine animals swimming around in the ocean. So it's kind of hard for countries to like put that definitive quota on it. So any anything needs to be really conservative. And that's where it starts to get hard when you introduce, you know, more commercial interests, like these subsidies into the equation, because there's more people that want to push the quotas higher so that they can 
catch more fish theoretically, but if the stock is already depleted, then there's not the fish to catch. So everything needs to be done with conservation in mind. Um, and, and it really hasn't been that way yeah, to date. I agree. There was another really good point, um, kind of like what we can do about this that you brought up and that I also found in our research, um, protecting some waters. So you want yeah. to talk a little bit about, about MPAs? I love MPAs. <laughs> Um, Yeah, MPAs are marine protected areas, or as Sylvia Earle calls them, hope spots. (laughs) And um, actually, I found NOAA statistic, according to a recent NOAA report, as of June 2020, 26% of U.S. waters are in some sort of MPA, and 3% are Mm -hmm. no-take MPAs. So there's different guidelines and restriction restrictions around MPAs and no takes are the most uh, restrictive MPA that you can have, which means that you're not allowed to take any, you're not allowed to fish it at all. You just have to let it be. Um, and what they're finding with these MPAs is that it, you know, if you take the pressure off an area and you allow it to breathe for a second, that, you know, the biodiversity and the ecology comes back. And it's just this this mm-hmm. beautiful example of what conservation can provide if you just let it breathe for a year or two or, re- or reduce the mm-hmm. pressure on a certain area. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of MPAs. I don't have any stats on where we're at worldwide. I know that there's been quite a bit of... <laughs> You do awesome. Come at me with it. Let's hear it. So the U.S. is slaying it, basically. Um, there's <laughs> only 1.5% of the world's oceans are protected waters. Okay. So that's like 98.5% of the ocean is fair game for fishermen. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So we have so, yeah, we're, we're looking good. <laughs> That makes me very proud of our country. Um, but as a global citizen, I have concerns. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, you, you know, so kind of on that note, I did a, a short study abroad in um, Puerto San Carlos, which is on the Baja Peninsula. It's in Magdalena Bay on the Pacific side of Mexico. And when I was there, I was kind of introduced to some different challenges in conservation. So it's a really small fishing town that relies heavily on the scallop fishery as well as the crab fishery. And they, Mm -hmm. there were talks of creating MPAs um, along the coast because in the Magdalena Bay area, it's a very unique area that has an upwelling system. So it's very biologically diverse. And so they're trying to, they were at the time. Hang on, pause, pause. Yeah. So upwelling means that there's some deep nutrient rich, cold ocean, deep ocean water that comes up and it comes into the shallower waters and it creates this cycle so it provides all these wonderful nutrients into the shallower waters, which helps the biodiversity. That's yes. what upwelling is. Thank Continue you. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> I got into it. <laughs> so we were talking to the fishermen and, you know, basically their, their stance on it was 
who are these scientists or, you know, academic people coming into my small town that, you know, my father's father's mm-hmm. father's fished his whole life, telling me mm-hmm. that I can or can't fish this area um, coming mm-hmm. from, you know, what we would consider a small scale fishery. You know, they're they're doing mm-hmm. it pretty sustainably in terms of you know, when you look at that compared to the the bigger vessels. So, you know, they're, they're using a lot of simple methods. They're not going far offshore because they're using small boats. They're doing everything by hand. Um, you, you know, they're, they're not taking large amounts from the environment. They're kind of just whatever they need for their family and to self to, to make a living. Um, and so it kind mm-hmm. of introduced me to, you know, there's, I can imagine there's a lot of little towns just like that all over the world, obviously, in places that are less developed, that rely on these waters for their livelihood, obviously, in a way bigger way than what some of these larger commercial fishermen do, because, you know, if they can't fish, they they literally don't, don't eat. Um, so I understand right. the the challenge there on trying to change mindsets, but also be respectful of people's way of life and respectful of the mm-hmm. impact it can have on them economically. Um, so yeah, I mean, like like you said, if one one percent of of the MPAs globally, there's there's a lot of education and um, and work to be done for sure. And that's a really good point. I read an article recently about um, I feel like I'm I'm botching the like the term it was using. I want to say it was like scientific pioneering, but I don't think that was right. But the concept was like what you just described of outsiders coming into these to small local areas and telling them like about their areas right so they're doing they're doing their doing studies and taking it away um and writing their own papers on it or they're like providing their own opinions on these areas that these people have lived in for generations Mm -hmm. and the thought is behind that to um get people more involved that are in the community and that would help one educate the local community a little bit more about kind of the global perspective and what's happening worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the best way for people to start to get involved. Right. So right. if you get somebody that's interested in the scientific process that lives there, maybe they can carry that on. And that's how it would be brought into the community. It's really hard to get an outsider coming in and telling you how your fishery should be run that your grandfather has been doing, you know? So it's, it's, kind of getting people a little bit more involved. And we, I talked to um, Dr. Andrew Chin over in Australia, and he had a really good point about, you know, they put, they have such indigenous or native people, and it doesn't have to be necessarily like native people, but people that have lived in an area for generations have this knowledge that mm-hmm. science, new science really just can't compete with. I agree. That's just been handed down for generations. So you really can learn so much without coming in and being like, well, we analyzed this for three weeks. And so therefore right. we know. Um, well, yeah, I think yeah. that's where it comes down to just being able to build relationships with these communities. Because yeah. like you said, 
they are receptive over time once they understand, you know, the impact uh, that or the, once they understand how this could potentially impact them in a positive way, how they can right. get involved and help. And um, yeah, it, it's it's you can't just swoop in and give your opinions and leave like there has to be some sort of relationship built there for there to be any sort of change made. Um, and a lot yeah. of times, you know, these scientists are relying on if they're smart, they're going to rely on this local knowledge to help them. Because like you said, there's this this deep rooted knowledge of an area that only people that have lived there for generations know. And um, it's really helpful if you can mm -hmm. tap into that. Yep, absolutely. Um, so we kind of talked a little bit about the different types of fishing gear. And I want to talk about gill nets are a huge issue. Long lining is another one um, that's a big one that people use because it doesn't take up as much room. Um, but it does have huge devastating effects. So it's like miles and miles of hooks stationed, you know, however far apart, so increments apart. And it catches everything. It's very indiscriminate. Um, so this, it catches what they want, but it also catches dolphins and turtles and species that are, may or may not be of size. Um, so it's definitely a problem and requires some thought into regulation. Yeah. I don't think I want to get into all the different types though, and the pros and cons, but I feel like gill nets with the drift nets and the, um, and the long lines. And we talked about bottom trawling and just how they kind of scrape the whole bottom indiscriminately. Mm -hmm. Those are probably the biggest contributors. Um, but so is aquaculture. You can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. So aquaculture, in my opinion, is <laughs> a, <laughs> a little bit of a double-edged sword. I know a lot of people tout aquaculture as the solution for making up that uh, difference in what the ocean can provide versus what the global demand for seafood is going to be. Um, so aquaculture is basically just where you're farming seafood. <laughs> so um, you can do this in inland ponds or raceways. Uh, you can also do this in open ocean pens. Um, right now, currently, there's over 50% of the seafood produced globally actually comes from aquaculture. Um, so we've already been practicing this and in our practices <laughs> have learned some things over time. <laughs> so um, I just kind of want to touch on some of the challenges uh, of aquaculture and why mm -hmm. I think it's not necessarily the solution. I think it could be a very good solution if done correctly. But right now, I think there's it's uh, it's too detrimental, in my opinion. Um, so you have chemical inputs uh, that can be a challenge. And chemical inputs are going to come from the excessive use of chemicals like antibiotics or antifoulants or pesticides. Um, as well as other banned chemicals that are going to affect the ecosystem and human health. And they're using these chemicals to raise the animals. So just like we do in 
monoculture farming with, you know, cows and pigs and things like that, where we have to give them antibiotics because we're raising a lot of animals in a small space so they can get sick. Got to use a lot of antibiotics, a lot of chemicals to potentially try to keep these animals free from disease, which is the next challenge, disease and parasites. So there's viruses and parasites that can transfer between farmed and wild species, especially if they're in these open ocean pens. Um, you can also have escapes from these pens that go out into the wild and compete with um, wild fish for food. And they also breed with those local populations, which alters the, that pool of genetic diversity. Um, the feed for aquaculture is also a problem because it's dependent on fish meal and fish oil, which is the primary ingredient. And that puts, puts additional pressure on fisheries that are already under pressure because you're feeding fish with fish, which is crazy in my opinion. Um, in the, <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe we could use some of that bycatch. I, I don't know. But uh, fish caught to make fish meal and fish oil currently represents a third of the global fish harvest. Um, we also use grain-based feeds, Lord. which means that we're going to introduce GMOs and pesticides from corn and soy. So that's also an issue. Right. So, uh, you know, what you're feeding these animals, you are consuming. Just remember that. Whether it's a fish or a pig or a cow or whatever, um, what goes in goes into you. Um, you also have this concept of nutrient pollution. Um, so any of this excess food, excess fish waste, uh, it increases the level of nutrients in the water which potentially leads to oxygen-deprived waters that stress aquatic life, creates dead zones, things like that. Um, there's also land mm -hmm. conversion. So we're taking these coastal areas. Um, and what comes to mind for me is shrimping, the shrimp industry. Um, they're taking out mm -hmm. mangrove forests by the coast to develop these aquaculture ponds to raise shrimp in. So it's destroying coastal habitat and nearshore environments. Um, and that's- Where are they doing that? Uh, I know in like Ecuador, uh, I saw a study for Ecuador and I think it's more so in like South America. Okay. The pollution from poorly managed and unsustainable seafood farms and aquaculture, it just causes this deterioration of coastal habitats and lakes and rivers and things. And in my opinion, it's just the, the benefit is not there um, for me. It's just, it, it causes too much um, damage, but you had mentioned that you had a, um, someone on the podcast who did aquaculture and they yep. had a sustainable option. Yes. So there is, there is such thing as sustainable aquaculture and it, it comes in the form of shellfish and vegetables, sea vegetables. Uh, so I had Brent Smith on the podcast um, with Green Wave and I'm, and he does vertical 3D farming and he uses shellfish. Um, so it's mussels and oysters and I don't think he did clams. Um, and then he does, sea vegetables so this is like kelp he does mostly kelp 
um, but this could be any sort of plant that grows in the ocean can be farmed theoretically. And the beautiful thing about growing plants and shellfish in the water column is that it, they don't add anything to the environment and they will take other than like a habitat um, and they'll take pollution out because there are excessive nutrients out of the water column because they need it to grow as well. So it's this beautiful relationship in that they're living in an environment that they're meant to be in. They don't require any inputs because they're living in their perfect habitat and they provide they provide wonderful things for the ecosystems. They provide a sustainable aquaculture option for us. And it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, it, it can definitely be done um, at a large scale. Yeah, it's when we're talking about fish and shrimp and... I don't, yeah, I don't know if I it can be done with fish shrimp what, and things like that. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is for those guys. But I mean, def that sounds like a great place to at least start, though, because if we can replicate yep. that on a larger scale, um, you know, yeah, so, so Greenwave is working towards having these farms, these smaller farms everywhere. Um, and so the idea is that people would try to transition a little bit more into or do transition into more of the sustainable diet and really source. If you're getting sources of seafood, make sure that it's coming from a sustainable source. And this would be a sustainable source. Um, personally, when I buy shellfish, I don't like if I'm buying clams or oysters, particularly, I asked if it's farmed um, and I want it to be farmed. And that's like the only time that I want my seafood to be farmed because they do it in a way that it's sustainable. Um, it provides, like I said, it provides habitat, it provides jobs, and they want to keep their crop growing. So they are managing this, this farm so that it's sustainable for their own future because they provide their own seed um, or if they don't for their farm. Mm -hmm. So I like it. Um, and that's kind of the only way I'll eat shellfish anymore because otherwise there's a good chance it was dredged. <laughs> and I don't want to, right. I don't want to contribute to that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And if you kind of want a resource, uh, we were kind of talking about this earlier, um, a resource, uh, there's seafood watch guides out there that you can get on the internet and it's going to give you, um, the best choice for, seafood, whether it's certified, any good alternatives, it's going to give you seafood to avoid based on the fishing practices, or maybe there's too much pressure on the fishery or whatever the case may be. So you can kind of make more educated choices um, on what you're consuming, which is our goal in life is just to be educated consumers. Yep. <laughs> so seafood watch guide. Yeah. And it's such a, it can be such a daunting task. And I understand that, but it's, it's, pretty important when it comes to what you're putting on your plate in so many different ways, um, especially from the ocean. So, you know, we talked a lot of it about like a lot of the problems that are facing it. So what can you do as a listener? What can you go forth and do from this episode about overfishing? So know what you're putting on your plate. So Lori mentioned these seafood guides. Um, Marine Stewardship Council also has a regulation program and they put um, like little stickers or stamps on things that are Marine Stewardship Council certified. Um, so they are looking at not only sustainable practices, but also traceability. And this is something that we didn't really talk about, but um, what you buy 
at the store or the market may or may not be actually what you buy. There's been a lot of, how do I want to say this? <laughs> like the false marketing, false, false products. Yeah. But no, it's just like it's straight up like you, you think you're buying like salmon and it's not. Um, mm-hmm. So oh, salmon would be really hard to fake, I think. But you think you're buying a white fish and it may not be a sustainable white fish. So like really knowing what seafood that you're buying is really important. Um, and if you can know where it's coming from, then that's the best thing. I know that there's like track tracing programs that will trace like the exact boat and day that your fish was caught on. And I'm fully on board with that because um, I think that's just kind of where we need to be with things. But also um, knowing what you're buying. So like not just the gear type that caught it, but like the type of fish that you're consuming. I know a lot of people love grouper, especially in Florida. Um, and this is like one of my personal sticking points. Um, grouper takes a really, really long time to reach reproductive age. And that's a problem, one, for groupers. Um, and then two, because like because of bioaccumulation, they may have a lot of toxins in their tissue. So you really don't shouldn't be eating that anyway. A nice alternative is mahi, right? It, it reaches reproductive age in a couple of years and it's still a really tasty fish. Um, so kind of knowing what you're buying versus, versus just blindly picking something off of the menu is a great way to do it too. Yeah, I agree. Those are all great suggestions. Do you have any other things to add what they can do to help with overfishing? Being educated, you know, like keeping up on current news and uh, knowing what's on the ballot. I know, you know, we're not trying to be political, but it does make a difference. And, uh, you know, your votes are going to help in terms of pushing legislation forward that is going to hold fishermen accountable and, you know, put practices into place that are more sustainable for the future. So um, you just kind of have to be you just kind of have to know what's going on and check in every once in a while and um, make decisions based on that. So the other point I wanted to talk about was with our big episode 50 is pollution. It can be broken up into four categories. Um, each is not worth the same weight, but we're in, we'll, we'll touch on the four categories of chemicals, noise, light, and trash. And I'm going to knock the easy ones out really fairly quickly. <laughs> Um, so noise can be like drilling and like um, sounding for drill sites. Um, that could be noise pollution. It could just also be lots of the big ships in the area. Uh, sound carries really, really well underwater, a lot better than it does through air. So any sort of extra marine noise can be really detrimental to marine animals. Um, and light, I didn't really think about light in the ocean, but you have light pollution on land and that's the phenomenon where if you look up in at a night sky and you can't see the light or can't see the stars because even though it's a perfectly clear night, it's because of light pollution. Um, here, if you look at, you know, in my hometown, if you look a little bit south, you just see this like faint glow from the more denser populated areas. So that's light pollution, but it also penetrates into the nearshore reefs and this can disrupt circadian rhythms. Uh, it can create issues for, predators that hunt at night and not so much for the predators, but for the prey. Um, and, and it can cause an imbalance in reef fish as well. So it's something that I hadn't really thought about a whole lot. Um, cause you kind of think of the ocean being dark for the most part, <clears throat> but like pollution is an issue. 
The other two is trash and chemicals, and they are heavy hitters. So let's chat. Let's chat a little about chemicals and nutrients. <laughs> okay. Can I give you a quote first from Rachel Carson because it's pretty great. Yes. Another one. She's the theme of our, <laughs> our podcast She's right now. Okay. The most alarming of all man's assaults upon the environment is the contamination of air, earth, rivers, and sea with dangerous and even lethal materials. This pollution hmm. is for the most part irrecoverable. The chain of evil it initiates, not only in the world that must support life, but in living tissues, is for the most part irreversible. In this now universal contamination of the environment, chemicals are the sinister and little recognized partners of radiation in changing the very nature of the world, the very nature of its life. So I thought this was an amazing observation. Um because yeah. chemicals in general are not something that was discussed back then um, and are mm -hmm. a huge problem that we're seeing now. And they are persistent and they are in the air. They are in the soils. They are in the water. Um, so, yeah, let's uh, dive a little bit into that. <laughs> so, first off, I want to mention that Again, I know I mentioned this on the last podcast too, but 80% of land-based or 80% of marine pollution comes from land-based sources. So that's going to include agricultural runoff, yeah. discharge of nutrients, pesticides, untreated sewage, plastics, things of that, that nature. So um, again, it, it kind of, it starts on land where we need to start making some changes here. So um First, I kind of wanted to highlight um, something that's specific to Florida, but also I'm sure, as um, Kara will mention, has implications in other states as well. But outfall pipes in Florida, um, we have six on the East Coast mm -hmm. between Palm Beach to Miami. And these pipes belong to wastewater treatment plants. Um, and the pipes are located one to three miles offshore. And basically, the practice began in the 1940s, and it was routine by the, the 70s that um, these pipes were discharging partially treated sewage into coastal waters of the Atlantic, um, which is gross to think about, right? Because you're swimming in that water, the currents are carrying it close to shore. I mean, it's just gross. Okay. So from what I uh, read, two pipes uh, have almost completely stopped flowing in Palm Beach County, um, but there's also four others. There's two in Broward and two in Miami, um, collectively that flush an average of 188 million gallons of wastewater daily into the ocean. Is this treated water? So, yeah, so when I say partially treated sewage, the treatment plants are disinfecting the sewage before it heads out to the ocean. But the effluent is high in nitrogen and phosphorus, according to DEP. Um, there was another report that I saw by a graduate student at the University of Florida, and he found that the filtration does not remove um, cryptosporidium and giardia prior to discharge, uh, which is a huge health concern both of those are parasites by the way that you do not Wait, want so what do those cause 
uh, gut issues. Uh, Giardia is going to cause, you know, like, so when you go to Mexico, you don't want to drink the water because you could potentially get Giardia. Um, So it's going to give you that like traveler's diarrhea, things like that. Um, Mm. So when I say partially treated sewage, it's, it's treated, but it's also nutrient dense and it's not, it's still got uh, some bacteria and parasites and things in it that are unwanted that are going into the marine environment. Um, But Florida lawmakers, they have set a plan to end the regular use of the pipes by 2025. And the Florida Department of Environmental Protection is monitoring the progress of this plan. And so far, from what I read, they are on track to basically discontinue these pipes by 2025. So that is positive. Um, But I know Mm -hmm. that there are other areas around the US and I'm sure other areas of the world that have the same sort of systems, old outdated systems in place, that mindset that the solution to pollution is dilution (laughs) is still heavy in a lot of areas. Um, So, you know, our wastewater treatment facilities are aging uh, you know, we're still in the process of updating a lot of those facilities to make them better to filter out more things from water. And um, but it is a source of of nutrients and chemicals into the water. Yep. Wow. OK, so I didn't really realize that we had that wastewater point source pollutions into the ocean here. Yes. Well, not yes, yeah. directly. But There's six pipes. Disgusting. Correct. I'm glad that they're pipes. being phased yes. out. Um, so I would like to encourage people to look in your own backyard and see what where your wastewater goes. Um, and if you're like, I'm on a septic system, it's fine. Septic's leach. So I, I, I do. I am a fan of the, the wastewater treatment, um, but it does need to be in a responsible manner. So I agree. I was recently introduced to this concept in California of first rain. It's some, it's something with the first rain. I might be getting the exact term wrong, but it's something that happened. It rains so infrequently in California and particularly Southern California that when it does rain, all of these nutrients and pollutants that have been just sitting and cooking on land get flushed and they get flushed into the ocean um, just by natural runoff sources, they may have some point source pollution. I'm not confident. Um, but the result is that people don't want to go surfing right after the first rain because it takes a long time for this to kind of clear up, which is really disconcerting. Um, and that it's such a phenomenon. And I think that's interesting because it's California and you always think of California as being so progressive with a lot of environmental things. Um, and, but it's still happening there. So like I mentioned, look in your own backyard and if something like that's happening, you know, there's ways to collect the water before it goes into these main water bodies, right? So all this rainwater can be collected in different ways, whether it's like a stormwater treatment pond or a ditch, or if, you know, you can pipe, if you can pipe it all and treat it through wastewaters, there's way to, ways to collect water and they're not going to be, they may not be simple or they probably are, might be simple, but may not be cheap. It may not be simple to implement, but I kind of want to make people aware of where this extra water goes, particularly after it rains. Um, we also mentioned earlier the dead zone that occurs in the Gulf of Mexico every summer. So Lori was talking about 
this, the nutrients, extra nutrients that come out of these outfall pipes in Florida. And the problem with extra nutrients is that they can fuel algae blooms and algae blooms mm -hmm. are, can be really impactful um, in that they bloom, they gobble up lots of, lots of, they gobble up all this extra nutrients. And then once they gobble up all the extra nutrients, there's nothing for them to eat, right? So they start to die and it creates this huge die off of algae. And once the algae dies, it decomposes and it takes a lot of oxygen in order to decompose this algae. And it creates these hypoxic or anoxic, there's no oxygen in these areas. And these are called dead zones. So really nothing lives in these areas. And there's one the size of New Jersey in the Gulf of Mexico every year. And it's because of runoff that comes down the Mississippi River and it's the extra nutrients that causes these big blooms. Um, and it's something that I'm sure happens at these outfall pipes. Um, some Another thing that we're noticing is, an, so people don't realize that seaweed, that as we think of it, is actually a type of algae. It's a brown algae and by itself it's actually really, in normal amounts, it's a good thing. Um, but in too much, you know, too much of a good thing isn't always a good thing, despite whatever song that is. Um, so, so sargassum, we have a whole sea named after it, and it's really great, can provide a really great habitat for lots of marine creatures. Turtles are one of them. Um, there's actually a sargasso fish. Like there's, it's a really cool and interesting plant. Um, but the problem is when we get all these extra nutrients, we create these sargassum blooms. And in the last few years, there's been a lot of it, and the, it's been washing up on the beaches. Mm -hmm. It's and it rots, and this isn't just in the United States and Florida. This is like I've no, I've heard of issues like in, throughout the Caribbean and parts of South America. So that's kind of one of the issues of the extra nutrients in the water. It creates this huge imbalance and create can create these dead zones. Um, and so we're looking at ways to prevent the nutrients from entering the water is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So um, we talked a bit about you know, some of these like nutrients from farming, but Lori, you brought up a really good point and that is glyphosate. And talk a little bit about that. Yes, I would love to talk about glyphosate. Um, so most people by now hopefully have heard about glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, um, mm -hmm. which is produced by the company Monsanto. Um, glyphosate is an herbicide and it's used primarily in agricultural industry. It's a non-selective herbicide that just basically kills plants, any plant that it comes in contact with. Um, so agriculture was originally using it to kill off, you know, weeds and other plants that were competing with the monocrops, whether it be soy or corn or sugar beets, um, so those other crops could thrive, which is where we got these uh, Roundup resistant plants. Um, by the 1900s, we had actually, I think it was like 1996, uh, we genetically modified plant species. So mainly the corn, soy, sugar beets, a lot of those commodity crops. Um, they're Roundup ready, which means that they could increase their usage of Roundup on these crops and it would not affect the crop they were trying to grow. So the corn, soy, sugar beet, whatever it may be, um, because the Roundup is so deadly. Um, so we spray more than 4.5 billion pounds of glyphosate into the soils, onto plants, 
into water systems of our planet. Um, this is a lot. Uh, as far as, so a little background. So Roundup, um, so glyphosate was used in Agent Orange, which as most people know, was used in the Vietnam War. So when the war ended, they had all this extra um, chemicals, herbicides basically, and the glyphosate was then repurposed into the Roundup and used in agriculture. So um, why this is important? Why are we talking about glyphosate? I will say one good thing about it. They, you know, yeah. they were trying to repurpose it. Reuse, repurpose, right? <laughs> I don't really like how they did it. The silver lining. Like <laughs> Way to conserve. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. Oh, my goodness. Anyway. So, so why are we talking about, so why are we talking about glyphosate? Um, why is this important to just, not just planetary health, but um, marine health in general? So, opposed to other pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, other types of chemicals that are fat soluble and more like hydrophobic. Glyphosate is actually a water soluble toxin. And what this means is that it cannot be taken out of the environment because we have two thirds of our globe is covered by water. And we humans are made of 70% or more water. And so when you have a water soluble toxin, it is literally integrating into everything. Um, and this is really important because in the last podcast, we kind of touched on persistent bio bioaccumulative toxic substances, which are the PCBs. And when you have other toxic compounds that are more hydrophobic and not hydrophilic, which means that the hydrophobic means that they don't readily dissolve in water. They're going to kind of float on the surface and they'll cling to, um, well, what they're finding is they'll, they'll cling to microplastics, which we'll talk about plastics in just a minute, but um, they're finding that these chemicals are just kind of magnetizing to uh, these plastic particles, which are making their way into the marine environment. So, Glyphosate doesn't need to do that. It's just in the water. It's in our water systems. Um, glyphosate mm -hmm. in the U.S., it's found in over 750 products. So you can, I mean, anybody can go to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy gallons and gallons of Roundup because, you know, mm -hmm. we tend to like our, you know, manicured lawns and we have this like war on weeds for some reason. Um, so, you know, the general. I have a story about that. We're going to, my poor neighbors. <laughs> oh, so I bought, I bought my house a few years ago and they, who the previous owners made a rock garden, several rock gardens. And like, this might work in um, Arizona or like southern california where it doesn't rain in south florida rock gardens become weed gardens unless you really like weeding or you use chemicals and me being me and like water quality is my thing uh i'm like no we will not be using chemicals so 
and I don't like weeding. <laughs> so <laughs> my rock gardens became weed gardens very quickly. And I had, I had this neighbor across the street and she's like this very lovely woman. And she has this very tidy little lawn. And she's like, I made up a batch of weed killer for, and I have a little bit extra. Can I just hit these weeds in your, in your driveway? Like I look at them and I'm like, no. <laughs> 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 oh my goodness this is like, i feel like that's how i would be yeah I'm I'm gonna, i'll pick them this one time because you because they bother you but no you may not because they bother you apparently yeah <laughs> not, oh this war on weeds it's crazy it is funny and and now i'm working on making my rock gardens less weedy but i am working on a ground cover to just cover the whole thing it just takes time because plants yeah. have time to grow, but I can't stand, I can't stand the chemicals. So yeah. we're not doing it. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe you'll convert her over time to use. Well, she moved, less. unfortunately. I tried. I tried telling her, oh. but some people don't. Unfortunately like or fortunately? <laughs> you know, I really liked her as a person. I just didn't like that one okay. habit of hers. And I, you know, I told her why and she loves the water and she's, and she, she's older. She's like, oh, I used to dive, but the ostrich phenomenon is real. Like you stick your head in the sand and like, you can be told something, but like, if you don't want to hear it and you don't want to believe it, like there's nothing in the world that like forces you to, right. Or I mean, unless you're forced to, unless something really drastic happens. Um, and I think that's unfortunately a lot of what's happening is like with water pollution or with, um, with chemicals in our environment is like, you can't really see it. Um, and so people don't want to believe it's there. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And uh, when you put a chemical that powerful into the average Joe's hands, it's you don't know how much people are using or how they're disposing of it or whether they're just dumping it on their lawns. You know, like you can buy however much. I mean, it's it's. Mm-hmm there's no limit you can just go to the store whenever and just buy gallons and gallons of it so you know it's widely used in agriculture and it contaminates mm-hmm. our groundwater our rivers our lakes our marine systems it's even found in rainfall all of those are water water soluble toxin um, the u.s has been monitoring glyphosate levels in surface water since 2012 so at least we're monitoring it Um, And it's also monitoring one of the primary chemicals that glyphosate breaks down into, which is um, aminomethylphosphonic acid, AMPA. So I guess that's a good thing. But I believe the half-life is six months of the chemical or about six months. but that also depends on conditions. Okay. So, you know, just like when, when we talk about plastics, we'll talk about this as well. You know, different conditions are mm-hmm. going to make things degrade in different ways. But um, I thought I remember reading an article that said there are certain types of bacteria and fungi that do break the chemical down over time, which is a positive thing. Um, the problem is that the the quantities in which we're using this mm. chemical daily is mm-hmm. creating issues. And we really don't understand how this chemical will disrupt marine ecosystems, especially in aquatic plants or algae or 
how it will affect marine species and the life cycles of those marine species. Mm -hmm. um, we already know that it's a health concern for humans. So, you know, it's, we just don't have the data to confirm yet. I don't think that it's a problem in, in marine species, but we know it's a problem. Right. So here, like, mm -hmm. you know, people are mm -hmm. like, oh, data, 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 data. Okay. Here's the thing. It's a chemical. It's an inorganic compound. It does not exist in nature naturally. Okay. And we're introducing it. Common sense dictates it's going to have an effect. And traditionally, inorganic compounds Agreed. don't do well with bodies. Period. Well, and we need data to make policy. Right. Yeah. You need data to prove it and to make policy. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I think that's a case where it's like, yeah. why can't common yeah. sense prevail? Or can we use data? Here's a question for my people that are more law minded. Can you use data like DDT, for example, inorganic compound proven to be problematic in the natural environment and was is heavily, heavily regulated, right? So can you, you can you extrapolate that and be like this compound is inorganic, it's caused problems. So therefore, can we use that data and put it against different inorganic compounds? Or do we have to find it for that specific one? Yeah. Like why, why do we, why do we yeah. have to learn that way is the question. And do we have to learn that yeah. way? Yeah, I would be interested to know that too. I, my gut's telling me that you have to do it per chemical um, unless you can prove somehow that a group of chemicals is having an adverse effect and take them all off the market. But unfortunately, there's so many different chemicals out there. BPA is coming to mind. You know, there was this huge push to get BPAs out of plastics and BPA is actually what makes plastic hard. And so um, if they take BPA out of plastic, do you think that they're not just going to replace it with another chemical that's similar to BPA that's not BPA you know like that's that's you know so how do you know they're not replacing it with something that's as bad if not worse right. than BPA because you don't know because that's where my problem comes in it's like it's like this revolving door once you take one off the market or take one to court you know in a civil lawsuit it's another one's just going to replace it so right that's the part that just blows my mind like why, why is it so easy for that to happen? I feel like it should be much, much harder for it to come into the world. Yeah, I, I feel like there should be data on file before you use a chemical as opposed uh, you needing data to take a chem to prove that you need to take a chemical off the market. You know what I mean? Like you can just put right. chemicals in anything without having science to back it up, but then to prove that it's having a harmful effect you have to then have the data to take it off the market right. it's it's like backwards yeah in my opinion i feel like you need to yeah i agree i think that you should prove that it's that it's helpful and not harmful before it's allowed mm -hmm. on the market how do we make that happen i think it's supposed to happen that way just but yep. anyway should we get into plastics a little bit yeah i do and i want to leave one we talked about florida a lot and it's yeah. one, it's because we're, I mean, we're Florida, one. And two, Florida is mostly water. But it's not just um, people that use it, like, for their own backyards. And, like, it's not just commercial, um, like, farms that use Roundup. But it may also be your local governing body. Yeah. Uh, so FWC in Florida 
we have an issue. We have an issue with invasives in Florida because Florida grows things really well. Um, period. The invasive above and below the water. Um, but in our waterways, we have water lettuce. And this is not sea lettuce. Um, it's like truly water lettuce. It's invasive and it chokes out. It'll it'll completely choke out an entire channel canal, like make it inavigable. It's a problem. And so FWC, you can mechanically pull it out, but it's really time and labor intensive and it grows really fast. So FWC has just been spraying it with Roundup right into the water, uh, which is a problem because we don't know what Roundup does. And then it goes right into our groundwater, which is where everybody in Florida has an aquifer underneath of it. So this is where we get all of our water from. Um, So out of that pond. Or that lake right. system, you know, right? It's just exactly right. So, um, again, look what's going on in your own backyard, and if you don't like it, write somebody and vote for people that know about it and care about it. Okay, mm-hmm. agreed. All right, let's chat for <laughs> a wee second <laughs> on wee plastics. Second. <laughs> on plastics, we did talk about. So, I'm going to try to remember to mention this in my intro, and hopefully, I do. But it's episode thirty. I had Lori on. We wanted to do 40 and then I don't know what happened, but we we're here for 50, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> but Lori was on for episode 30 and we chatted quite a bit about plastics at the end of our sea turtle episode. So if you want to know lots more about plastics and we cut co- than we're going to cover right now, head on over there. But mm-hmm. plastics, trash in the ocean is a problem. And the most prevalent trash that we have in the ocean is plastic. Talk about chemicals. <laughs> Talk about chemicals. Talk about persistent. Okay, so plastics are everywhere. Um, Plastics didn't start being mass-produced and used regularly in homes until about the mid-1900s. So it's been less less than 100 years that plastics have been around. Um, They are persistent and long-lasting, which means that every bit of plastic that's ever been produced is still out there in the environment today over 20 or 220 million tons of plastic are produced each year um there's this question i feel around how long does it take for plastic to break down in a marine environment and that is a very challenging question to answer um the challenges come from it does break down, <laughs> but just in a smaller pit. <laughs> yes, and at different rates. And so plastic's going to break down. Um, the The rate of breakdown is going to depend on exposure to sunlight. Uh, it's going to depend on whether it's salt water or fresh water, if there's microorganisms um, like bacteria or algae in the water, if it's a cold or warm water body. Um, the amount of oxygen in that water, the location of the plastic, all of those contribute to um, how marine debris breaks down. And then on top of that, you add in, you have these chemical additives that are put into plastics to give them different qualities, such as their flexibility, mm-hmm. their bright colors. Um, it makes them resistant to sunlight and heat. <laughs> Think of your Tupperware that can go in the microwave, mm-hmm. which don't do that guys, please use glass. Um, so this just adds to the complex 
question of degradation. Y'all, if you don't heat plastics, like there's these pouches that are microwave safe for your vegetables, take them out of the pouch and put them in a glass bowl or a ceramic yes. bowl. I don't care. Not plastic yeah. one. <laughs> yes. For your own health. Nope. Note on health, guys. <laughs> You're also going to get health tips here right along yeah. with all of your <laughs> marine info. Um, it's all related. We're all connected. <laughs> It, it is. It's all connected. I wish more people saw it that way. Um, so plastics just break down into tinier and tinier pieces and they never fully go away, um, which is where we're getting into this conversation of microplastics. Okay. So I found a really horrifying study and this was done in Britain. So it's going to be different in different places, but it's probably pretty representative of industrial industrialized areas. It's a 2018 study that an average Briton will swallow up to 68,000 pieces of microplastic a year from dust. And then, mm -hmm. and then diet may provide another 52,000 or so pieces of particles each year. And your body may or may not actually get rid of it. It's been found in human placenta, which is like we just said, it's, it's related, like your, your health and the health of the oceans really is connected. I'm not like, I don't, I don't just say it to say it. It's true. It's 100%, 100%. Um, because those tiny pieces that are breaking down are going into the base of the food chain, your algae, your zooplankton, your phytoplankton, and then that's being eaten by your feeder fish and then your feeder fish are being by your bigger fish. And then you're eating the tuna and the mahi that have been feasting on little fish that are full of plastic and that bioaccumulates up the food chain. Um, so we're just <laughs> polluting the environment, right? Comes right back to us. It's a circle polluting ourselves yep. in the end. Um, so and, something and, and that it's, people may not realize we like, we kind of talk about ways to prevent plastic, which of course, well, we'll talk, we'll talk about more ways to prevent plastic, but one of the ways that people don't really talk about it is what you're wearing. Um, so a load of laundry can, can generate hundreds of thousands of microplastic fibers yes. from fabrics such as nylon, acrylic, and polyester. And these are all plastic, like your dryer dust. There's like little plastic bits and you know that little strainer on your dryer isn't catching it all. So it goes into the air um, and then it settles in the ocean or you're breathing it. So even your clothing choices matter. And to my knowledge, there is a, a type of filter that I think you can get for your washing machines now that's supposed to catch some of those microplastics um, that are going, that are uh, basically being discarded with the water in mm, your okay. washing machine. So um, I don't quote me on that, but I feel like I did hear that they were starting to come out with some solutions to that. Um feel free to do some research, but yeah, that, like you said, that, that is a, a big source actually, because think of how often we wash our clothes and how many clothes people have. So it's, it's yep. a lot. So it's a lot. <clears throat> what can we do? One more note before we get into what we can do. Okay. Note on plastics that are labeled as bio-based or biodegradable. Yes. So Oftentimes, these uh, products need an industrial composting facility or very specific high temperature conditions to break them down. 
they're not actually designed to break down in your household compost pile or in an aquatic environment. So make sure that if you are buying anything that has that kind of um, language on it, bio-based, biodegradable, even some of these plant-based, check and make sure because they'll put a, um, a statement on the box or on the packaging that will let you know if it needs to be composted in an industrial facility or not. So I feel like a not, not a lot of people realize that, um, that it, yeah. it's, it is just plastic at the end of the day. Like they're trying to do better, but it's not much better than normal plastic. So be mindful of that. Yeah. I have a couple of things on that. I'm really glad you brought that up. So with, these different plastics that they are trying to be more plant-based, whatever. So biodegradable, it should actually biodegrade. Mm -hmm. um, compostable is where you get weird with the, it may require an industrial strength composter. And it will say that and most, and most all of this plantware that people are coming up with does require that. I have tried to, I have a compost bin. I have tried to break down the, even the biodegradable ones. It takes a long time. So keep that in mind. And even if you are using this and if you're using these plant-based ones, it really does require a, a composter and it cannot be recycled with normal plastic. So you can't throw it into your recycle bin with your normal plastics. Um, I watched a show, I forget, I forget what it was, but it was, they went to a, a recycling facility. I think it was in California and they actually had somebody dedicated to picking out all these plant-based cups to go into their industrial composter because if it went into the normal plastic recycling bin, it, it would ruin the recycling. It would ruin They'd the They'd throw recycling. it out. Right. Yeah. So basically put everything in the trash. Right. It is really important to like know that distinction. And if your local municipality can even, even has an industrial composter, I, it, it, I don't think most do, honestly. Um, but I would look into if, mm -hmm. if your local municipality has one, kind of what that would look like and how they actually recycle that. Um, and if you have single stream recycling, is it getting sorted out? And if it's not, you could just be contributing to the problem. Mm -hmm. So being aware of that and nothing, nothing is compostable in the marine environment. People are like, oh, it says it's compostable or it's biodegradable. It will not break down in the marine environment. Like nothing that we make does or like won't go away yeah. It'll into smaller and smaller pieces, um, but it doesn't actually go away. So don't, just because it says it does, don't throw it away or think it's okay to put it in the ocean or to be, for it to be in the ocean. It's not. <laughs> find find yes. a pro proper receptacle for it. I don't even like leaving my orange peels on the beach. You don't need to leave your stuff behind. If you bring it, get out. So what y'all can do. Yeah, so one of the best things to do is really the simplest, right? Re reduce and reuse. Reuse. Reuse your clothes, you know, like wear your clothes out for real. And when you think of wearing your clothes out, when you get like holes or they start to get like a little thin in places, that's all that plastic. So just keep that in mind. And every time you get new clothes, it just contributes. So be mindful of where you're getting your clothes from. Secondhand is great. I use threadup.com a lot. They're wonderful. I know Patagonia and Rana are you are striving to be more eco-friendly with their clothing um, but best best thing is to just reuse all of your stuff reusable mm -hmm. water bottles I find a lot of toothbrushes and toothpaste 
containers on the beach or tubes on the beach. I don't know why, how, but I use, I use baking soda guys. And I use a um, bamboo toothbrush and it's, it's mm-hmm. really simple to make baking. <laughs> it's like literally baking soda and a couple drops of peppermint essential oil. The benefits of brushing your teeth are the brushing part. It's not the paste part. The paste part was created as a marketing ploy to give you, to get people to brush their teeth, which it worked. So really, as long as you're brushing them, you're getting all those benefits mm-hmm. of stimulating your gums and, and keeping your teeth intact and healthy. Wait, that's some ways to reduce your plastic output. Make sure you're disposing, you know, we talked about chemicals a little bit, but there's chemicals in everything, um, you know, nail, nail polish, paint, makeup, all the things, batteries. Uh, peop- don't throw those, those things in the regular trash bin. There's hazardous waste facilities in almost every county. Um, if you, and I would look into where yours is and what they accept, um, but nothing like electronic stuff, none of that really should ever be thrown into the trash trash, especially anything that can leach. Like I said, paints, um, any household cleaners, any prescriptions. Mm, that's a big one. Yeah. Anything like that. Actually the hazardous waste in in my county doesn't accept any prescriptions. You have to actually take it to the police station and they, ha- they accept the recycling for it. I guess this was a little bit of a liability, <laughs> but even nail polish and makeup, it leaches. So take it. It's, it's considered hazardous waste, believe it or not. So unless you're like using sh- ground up shells and dirt as your makeup, uh, make sure you're <laughs> properly. <laughs> that sounds like a good day at the beach to me. <laughs> you know what? What are those, I'm blanking, um, what are those like really shiny little shells that you can crumble really easily? French toast, I forget. But I used like, that used to be a thing. We used to like cr- crumble them up and like put it on our bodies and be like, look, we have sparkles, we have glitter on. Looking <laughs> like a true native Floridian. I know. <laughs> it's amazing. I love it. That uh, probably would have been me too if I grew up in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so other things that you can do, reuse all your stuff, reduce your plastic, um, vote for real. Vote, voting is like, I, I talk about a lot on the podcast and I don't know how, how well it sinks in, but voting is seriously one of the most important things that you can do. And if you don't like anybody on your ballot, think about getting somebody on your ballot that you like, and maybe it's you. Maybe you want to be on the ballot, but we need good people in office that are enacting good change and, and enough of like people that are fine with the status quo. So, and if, and if the people that are in office right now aren't serving you, let them know, write them. It takes like five seconds to find their email and it may take a little bit longer to find their email, but it takes maybe a minute to write an email and be like, Hey, this thing that you're doing, I don't like it. Please stop that. This thing that you're doing over here though, I do like that. Do more of that. Let them know how they're doing. Give them feedback. It really is a squeaky wheel gets the grease type of thing. So make sure you're making mm-hmm. your voice heard. And that's yeah. the same thing with companies. I had I got an email recently. It was just like, it takes, it does, you don't have to write a whole long pair, multi-paragraph letter to companies to let them know what you're doing and and like why you do or don't support them, right? It can take five minutes to find an email and be like, hey, I've stopped buying things from you because you use plastic packaging and I want a more sustainable option, right? And it's two sentences. You don't have to make like a big thing of it. So just some things that you can do, like I said, if we all did it, it would make a huge impact. There's a lot of us. We all collectively do good things. 
it can make an impact. I completely agree. The power of the consumer. I wish more people would really mm-hmm. embrace that. Um, that whole concept of voting with your dollar. I mean, if the demand is not there, they right. can't sell a product. So um, like you said, it it takes one person and every other person of one together to make that change. Um, so even though you might feel like a drop in a bucket, you know, collectively, that's where the change happens. So if you're not buying something and your neighbor's not buying something and your family and, you know, your community, it, it, it adds up over time and companies have to listen. And I think that's one thing that our generation, I would say, is doing really, really well is holding companies accountable and really making sure that who we're supporting is a company of integrity, basically. Um, and I think companies are starting to realize that, that um, like we're, we're not going to stand for... <laughs> the status quo anymore like we are demanding change and that is one thing that i really do like about uh, the generation now and the generations coming up Um, and so yeah that's those are all really good um really good suggestions for solutions as to what we can do and I, i saw this meme the other day actually and it was like on a scale of one to 500 years, how much do you actually need that? And I was like, wow, that's great. Like if everybody actually thought that way before they bought something, holy cow. So maybe ask yourself next time you want to buy something and try to think about how long that product is going to last and outlive you, you know? I mean, I know it's already been produced, but like we said, if you don't buy it, changes have to be made. So um, whether it's packaging or the contents of the product, you know, another thing is just knowing what's in your products, know what chemicals make it up, ask for cleaner ingredients, ask for more environmentally friendly ingredients. That's really important. It starts at home and that's where you can make the biggest changes is starting at home and modeling that behavior that you want to see. Um, Start with the products that you put on your body. Start with the products you clean with. Start with your food, trying your best. You know, I I know it's, it can be expensive and it can be daunting, but trying your best to eat as much as you can organic, which is taking pesticides or reducing the pesticides that are put on our food. Um, and then it's that whole concept of acting locally and thinking globally. If we have enough people that are making these small changes, and I know I talked about this on uh, our other podcast, it's, it's those small collective changes that add up over time. And um, there was this really great uh, concept that I wish I could give her credit. I was listening to a podcast with a marine toxicologist and she was talking about tending Mm -hmm. to the part of the garden that you can touch, which really stuck with me because it's such a beautiful concept for, you know, it, it can be overwhelming when you try to think about changes that need to happen on a global scale. 
But if you truly just focus on yourself first and then your home and then your family and your community and the part of the garden that you physically can touch and then Kara, you focus on the part of the garden that you can touch in Florida and someone else on the other side of the world, they're focusing on their part of the garden. And together, we're just maintaining this beautifully biodiverse uh, garden that is well-maintained because we're all focusing on our little area. We're not worried about what's happening. Like, we should be worried about what's happening on the other side of the world. I, I'm not saying we shouldn't be worried about that, but I'm saying to simplify it and to get you started tend to the part of the garden you can touch in your in your own space where you are right now. Um, and that would be my biggest advice that I can give to people. Yep. Another way to look at it is uh, focus on what you can control, right? What can you do? Exactly. We, you know, if you don't, exactly. If you don't like, you know, get involved in your community. There's tons of groups. Yep. yep. I love it. Um, one other Thing we're talking about like companies and feedback i have a there's a well it's an app now but i use it as like a text service it's called remarky mark and you text feedback to this phone number and you give them feedback good or bad about a place that you went to and they will write the letter for you or call the owner for you and give them your biofeedback so i do it a lot and i think it was principally designed for restaurants um, so like if they served your stuff in disposable, disposable wear, or if like your to-go container was in styrofoam, you can text feedback to Remarky Mark and say like, I went to this restaurant on this date, I got this thing, this non-ocean friendly thing, and they'll write the letter for you. Um, so it takes you 30 seconds and then they take care of like quote unquote harder job. It just makes it really easy to to make your voice heard rather than like voting for your dollars is really wonderful. But like, if people don't know why you're not buying their thing, I think they need that feedback. Um, so I think that's a really okay. like, an, it's just another step that may take you 30 seconds. Um, and I'll put a link to that, to Remarky Mark and like all the things that we talked about today in the show notes. But um, it's just, just to make yeah. sure that like, really that your voice is being heard. We're voting for our dollars. We're making our voice heard. We're making choices that are good for our health and for the health of our blue planet. Yes. All good mm -hmm. things. You can make a difference. <laughs> awesome. Well, Lori, thank you so much for being on the show today. I love chatting with you as always. Of course. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate coming back on and giving some insight and also obviously learning some things. So it's been really great conversation. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. 
Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.